Um, good evening, everyone. Thanks for having me here. It's great to be here visiting with you. If you would, would you take your Bibles and turn with me to Galatians chapter 6. Let me read verses 1 through 3, and I'll pray, and then we can dig in together. Paul writes this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Would you pray with me? Father God, it's a privilege to come uh, before you again this evening as brothers and sisters in Christ, as your children, to sit under the instruction of your word. Lord, we meant what we sang, Lord, that we want you to take our lives and use them for your glory. Lord, especially as we focus on this passage, we want to apply what we sang. We want you to take our voices and take our lips and fill them with your word and give us the uh, confidence and the care to share your word with one another as we face trials and tribulation and temptations in this life. So, Lord, I pray that you'd be with us this evening and that you'd just bless the instruction of your word, and we ask this in your son's name. Amen. Um, well, again, I just wanted to do something that was a bit more practical for you guys as you think about your lives, as you think about your friendships. Um, and the purity of the body, that is the purity of the church, is preserved and protected I believe, and what Paul's teaching here, is through gospel-centered and biblically intentional relationships. So again, when we think about church and what the church is, the church is more than just meeting on Sundays. The church is more than just singing songs and listening to sermons and having good theology. When you go back and study, it is all those things, but when you go back and look into Acts, you realize that the church met weekly, and they were deeply involved in each other's lives. They had a depth of relationships. So that's what it means to be a church. Sunday is not enough to come together. The depth of relationships that we're after must come throughout the week. Sunday, yes. Wednesday night, yes. Sunday night, yes. But we should be deeply involved in each other's lives, not just on Sunday, but throughout the rest of the week. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says that Christian community is a privilege and a gift of grace, a source of incomparable joy and strength to the believer. And if you believe that, you're not going to just spend time with your brothers and sisters on Sunday morning. You're going to spend time with them throughout the week. Solomon wrote in, a, in Ecclesiastes 4, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and does not have another one there to lift him up. Biblical friendships are important to our lives. Uh, Aesop told a fable, a fable. He's a Greek storyteller. He told a story and he, he said that men are born with two bags on them. One is on the front and one is on the back. A heavy, heavy, think about Pilgrim's Progress and the, the load that he carried. The load that we carry on the front is the sins of our fellow believers. And the load we carry on the back is our own sin. And he said, we always look down and we can see other people's faults so easily, but we can never really see the faults that are on our own back that are ours. 
And he says that we need relationships. We need other people in order to help us see what's on our back. Again, when you read this and you think of this as Aesop's fable, you realize this is no fable, right? This is how we all are by nature. We, we so easily look at other people's sin. This accurately depicts you and I. We all have lingering sin, weaknesses, blind spots. All of us lack self-awareness. We all have hurts in our hearts and in our homes. And we really need each other. We really need one another to help one another follow Christ more closely. No one is more vulnerable or susceptible than an isolated, self-sufficient Christian. Again, you need one another. You need one another. Uh, Jesus, of course, taught this in Matthew chapter 7. He says, why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye, but ignore the log that is in your own eye? So do you see what he's saying there? You see what Jesus is saying there? You want to point out the little speck in your brother's eye, and you have this huge log sticking out of your eye, and you don't even see that. All you see is the other person. So in other words, he's saying that as humans, we all have a tendency to minimize our own sin and to maximize other people's sins. So again, what does Paul do here as we come to the text? What does Paul do? He brings us to this hypothetical yet very common human experience within the Christian community, within the church. I'm sure you guys have experienced this at your church. If you haven't, I would be very surprised. Um, He talks about someone who is caught in sin. Verse 1, brothers, if anyone is caught in sin. And again, I want to make clear at this point, caught in sin does not mean, it does not mean, whoa, that person was discovered to be in sin, or that person was caught in the act or found out. That's not what this, mean, this word caught means. Rather, this word caught means that they are overtaken, and they, they are weighed down. It's got this idea of a, a fish caught in a trap. Not like they are found out, but a poor animal caught in, the, in a trap needing help. And again, this is not beyond any of us. We could all slip and fall at any time. Sin is so deceptive and destructive. We all go through periods of temptation in our lives where we wrestle with sin and we struggle. We all struggle in various times with various degrees of sin. We all have a tendency to be hypocritical, to live duplicitous lives, to be one person at work and one person at home and another person at home. We all struggle with that. And again, our redeemed souls live inside of broken bodies, and our broken bodies live inside of a broken world. We're assailed by the the lingering affection for sin, and we're flooded with secular thinking from without. So we're, we're tempted from within, and we're tempted from without. And no one is above accountability. No one. No one is exempt from it, not by position or pedigree or age or experience or schooling or or socioeconomic status. I I don't care how long you've been a Christian. You're just as susceptible to sin as the as the brother or sister sitting next to you. Because the foot of the cross is level. We come to church 
as fellow image bearers, as fellow sinners, as fellow redeemed people of God who are on a journey, who are on a pilgrimage to become more and more like Christ. Again, I like this idea, this biblical imagery of being an exile, being a sojourner, because we're moving toward a definite direction. Again, at the moment of salvation, we're, we're justified and we're declared to be righteous, right? We're not actually righteous, but legally we're declared to be righteous in Christ, In the future, one day we're going to be glorified, right? We believe that one day when we stand before Christ, we will be made like him, right? Do you believe that? But in this, in the meantime, between our justification and our glorification, we have something called sanctification, where we are slowly and progressively becoming more and more what we're declared to be and what we one day will be. So again... We're all seeking for purity, but it's a struggle for all of us. To be a member of a local church, though, is to assume personal responsibility and mutual accountability. Uh, We're to pursue holiness. We're to help others pursue holiness. We're to help others, and others are supposed to help us. And how do we do this? How do we do this? How do we help a fellow brother or sister follow Christ more closely, especially when we see them caught in a sin or or being led astray by some false teaching or some secular ideology what do we do well we speak the truth in love we speak the truth in love that's what paul's after he wants us to counsel he wants us to admonish he wants us to encourage one another again this is a a word that paul uses often admonish romans 15:14 he says concerning you my brethren I myself am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to admonish one another. Paul is confident that if you are a Christian, you are able to admonish another brother or sister in Christ. Colossians 3.16, he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing. We see that word again. One another with all wisdom, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your heart to God. So again, this word admonishing, maybe you have this wrong idea that that's a very negative word. Can we be honest? It's a pretty strong word. It's got a lot of baggage to it. Because admonishing is what? It's pointing out somebody's sin. But when you really look up the meaning of that word admonish, it's not always a negative term. It actually carries the idea of teaching and encouraging and edifying and picking your brother who's fallen up and holding them up and building them up. It's not just a negative term. It's a very positive term when you go through it. So what I want to impress upon you this evening is that a gospel-centered friend, a gospel-centered friend is one who, being filled with the Holy Spirit, both gives and receives counsel from God's word so that together we can pursue greater depths of worship, Christ-likeness, and maturity. A gospel-centered friend is one who, being filled with the Spirit, both gives and receives counsel from God's Word. So let's look to the text. The first thing that I want you to see, uh, that I believe God wants you to see from this text, is that the attitude of our counseling should be humility and gentleness. Okay, the attitude of our counseling should be humility and gentleness. Let's skip over verses 1 through 2 for now and look back to verse 3. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And if you go back up to verse 1, it says, Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. 
So again, when it comes to admonishing one another, uh, maybe you have various um, real-life past experiences that come to mind. Maybe they're unpleasant, maybe they're unhealthy, maybe they're abusive, maybe they're traumatic ones. Uh, Maybe people within the church have been cold to you. Maybe they've been hurtful with their words. Maybe they've come on a little too strong in their counsel and their admonishment. Maybe rather than building you up, they've actually torn you down. And there's two extremes. When it comes to being a confronter, there's two kinds. There's two extremes. One is the overzealous confronter, right? He's the one, he or she is the one who is like, I can't wait to go confront somebody today. That's my job as a Christian. We're supposed to confront one another, right? That's often the boy who cried wolf, right? If you're always confronting somebody and you're always crying wolf, people are going to start to catch on and be like, I don't know if there's really anything to confront or if you just really like confronting. But the, on, the, on the flip side, the other extreme is the unenthusiastic confronter. Maybe that's you. Maybe you know that somebody needs to be confronted, yet you're unwilling to do it because it's uncomfortable and it's hard. Maybe you're the boy who should have cried wolf and didn't, and people got hurt and injured because you didn't. Again, these are two extremes. One is obnoxious, and one is negligent. But we want to find that middle ground. What does God actually want us to do? What is God calling us to do? Again, we are not called to be sin-searching, fault-finding, combative confronters who just wake up every morning and can't wait to confront other people. That's not what we're called to do. Um, Paul corrects all of these misconceptions here in this text, and he makes it abundantly clear that we should confront one another, we should correct, we should admonish one another with gentleness and with humility. Okay, He says in verse 3 that we should not think too highly of ourselves. You see, the built-in danger with confrontation is anytime you point out somebody else's sin, you just feel better about yourself. Paul knows that that's natural. And he wants us to be cautious of that, and he wants us to avoid that. Do not think too highly of yourself, or else you too will fall into temptation. Again, if you are a Christian, if you've experienced God's grace, how can you be judgmental toward another person? I love how Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes this in his book, Life Together. He says this, My sin is of necessity the worst, the most grievous, the most reprehensible. How can I possibly serve another person in unfeigned humility if I seriously regard his sinfulness as worse than my own? A good question. He says, anybody who has once been horrified by the dreadfulness of his own sin that nailed Jesus to the cross will no longer be horrified by even the rankest sins of his brother. Again, when it comes to others caught in sin and our responsibility to confront them, we should be humble and recognize that we, too, are sinners. And again, we must be careful here because Paul says, you who are spiritual, go confront a one, such a one. And of course, there's a built-in tendency in our lives to think, oh, I'm spiritual. But Paul's not saying that if you are more spiritual than somebody else, he's not saying that those of you who are perfect, those of you who have never sinned, those of you who have made it, Rather, he's saying those of you who faithfully walk by the Spirit, those of you who um, are filled with the Spirit and with the Word, those of you who regularly manifest the fruit of the Spirit in your life, he's not saying those of you who are perfect. So again, this kind of admonishment should be given and received in humility and in gentleness. 
And if you know your own heart, and if you really truly understand the gospel, then there's no place for pride in giving or receiving instruction. So what we are aiming for is really a gospel culture. Again, it's one thing to know the gospel. It's one thing to be able to preach the gospel, to sing the gospel, to cite the gospel. Um, But it's another thing to live out the gospel. Oftentimes, people who know the gospel the most, there's kind of this cognitive dissonance or some kind of disconnect from what they believe and how they live. Again, if you are a Christian, if you believe the gospel, then you yourself confess that you are a sinner. You confess that Jesus is your Lord and that the word is your authority. You confess that you are not perfect, that you have lingering sin in your life, in your heart, in your words, in your actions. And you are committed to ongoing repentance and sanctification. So you should welcome this kind of relationship that feels a little intrusive, that might be a little uncomfortable. You should be willing to in, in gentleness and humility, you should be willing to go and confront your brother, but you should also be willing to accept confrontation from others. In order to fix this disconnect, in Ephesians 4, 1 through 2, Paul encourages us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. In other words, walk in a manner that's worthy of the gospel, with all humility and gentleness, with patience showing tolerance for one another in love and being diligent to preserve the unity and the bond of peace. Um, again, if, if everything, if all you do is confront, 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 and you, don't, and you never ever encourage, there's a problem and there's a disconnect. Again, we have the right to speak into each other's lives, but we don't have the right to be rude and condescending. That is of the flesh. So first, the first thing we saw from this text is that the attitude of our counseling should be humility and gentleness. Okay? The second thing that Paul wants us to see is that the approach of our counseling should be love and care. The approach of our counseling should be love and care. Look at verse 2. Verse 2 says this, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. A very simple, succinct sentence right there. Our approach should be loving and caring. Again, this whole point of confronting and admonishing is to build one another up. It is not to tear each other down. So often we've built in our minds this completely negative view of this. Rather, he's saying that we are to actively bear one another's burdens and that in doing this, we're fulfilling the law of Christ. Again, when Paul uses this word, law of Christ, he's not talking about the Old Testament law. He's talking about the royal law that Christ gave when he summed up the Ten Commandments. He did this, uh, 1 Corinthians 9.21, Galatians 5.14, James 2.10 calls this the royal law. Um, And Paul's not talking about the Old Testament. He's talking about the two greatest commandments. When someone came to Jesus and said, what is the greatest commandment? What did he say? He said, the first is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. More than yourself. And then he says, love your neighbor more than yourself. That is the law of Christ. That is the royal command. And Paul's saying that when you admonish one another in a way that is gentle and humble, that you are bearing their burdens... And you are fulfilling the two greatest commands. It means that um, 
that the the love that you have for one another is demonstrative. It's it's self-sacrificial action toward another person. So when you counsel somebody, when you admonish someone with a spirit of humility and with gentleness, you are actually both loving your neighbor and you're glorifying God. You're passing the vertical and the horizontal tests. And you're loving that person. Proverbs 12, 18, There is one who speaks rashly like the thrusts of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. The tongue of the wise brings healing. Again, this takes wisdom and experience. Okay? Uh, you need to be very deliberate with your packaging when you go to somebody and confront them. Right? It's easy to just yell the truth at somebody, but admonishing somebody with the intention of restoring them is an art. So we don't want to be the kind of people that just drop truth bombs or, or demolish each other with the, like a sledgehammer, right? We don't want Bibles that are bent like shivs and attacking one another. Rather, admonishment is that fine work of a chisel and a hammer, that fine detail. It's like a, it's like a scalpel. It's delicate. It's detailed. It's precise work. That's how we should treat one another. I know that sin is dangerous. Sin is dangerous. And when we see someone caught in sin, we should warn them strongly. But there's also an element of pleading with them, of pleading with them. You can win an argument and lose the person. I I have this conversation with my son. Uh, I won't tell you which one, but you know in your family, it's usually probably the oldest one. Um, They love to argue, right? And they love to prove the right. And I have to tell them all the time, you can win the argument and lose the person. You don't want to do that when you're confronting your brothers and sisters in Christ. You don't want to lose the person. You should be winsome and persuasive. The goal is to win them. The goal is to restore them, not to push them away. We need to remember that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. We know this from the Old Testament. Even Nathan, who confronted David in gross immorality, how did he approach him? Did he come out and say, hey, you're an immoral, you know, apostate? No. He, he packaged his delivery in a parable. Why? Because Nathan knew that somebody who's deceived in sin is going to be defensive and easily turned off by a prideful attitude or a harsh tone. So he caught him off guard. He totally disarmed him with a story about a, a, a sheep. You guys remember that story. Jesus. What did Jesus do? Jesus disarmed Peter with breakfast before he confronted him and restored him. Paul admonished Peter to his face, not behind his back. Paul Tripp says the combination of powerful truth wrapped in self-sacrifice is what God uses to transform people. The combination of powerful truth wrapped in self-sacrificing love is what God uses to transform people. Again, people and their experiences are unique. Right? You can't treat people like they're monolithic. Every individual person is going to deal with sin a different way and for different reasons. We all have a unique personality. We all have a unique history. And when we go to confront our brother and sister in Christ, we need to make sure that we really know them and know where they are. Even Paul had the, this understanding in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 14. He says, you don't just go and confront everybody the exact same way. He says, you admonish the idol. You encourage the faint-hearted. You help the weak. You're patient with all of them. 
So again, we are looking for a church culture of deep relationships and a church culture that's more about caring, not just about correcting. Correcting is easy. Caring is hard. Um, We want to have a a gospel culture, a gospel-centered church that just has that same attitude that Christ had for us, that same attitude of grace. So again, by way of reminder... The attitude of our counseling should be humility and gentleness. The approach of our counseling should be loving and caring. And lastly, I want you to see in verse 1 that the aim of our counseling, the aim of our counseling is restoration. It's restoration. Look at verse 1. six one. If anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should what? Restore him. Restore him. The goal of our counseling The goal of our admonishment is not to shame or punish or tear down. It is to restore. That means it is to bring back. It is to bring healing. It is to build back up again. It is to bring back to a better state than it was before. Think about restoring an old house. You take this old dilapidated house and you restore it. We bought an old farmhouse in Rochester. And we've done a lot of work to it. And it looks better than it did when we bought it. We're restoring it. Um, It's the same with a sheep that's left the fold. You know, the shepherd who goes and gets that sheep and brings them back. It's tender. There's something tender. There's something careful about it. We're mending. It's like we're mending this broken bone. That's what we want to do when we confront somebody. It's to restore them. 1 Thessalonians 3.10, Paul says it's to complete what is lacking in that person's faith. James 5.20, I love this verse. Whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And of course, you know the principles found in Matthew 18. I'm not going to read those for you for sake of time. But if you go to... Matthew 18, verses 15 through 19, those are commonly known as the principles of church discipline, right? Jesus gave that, those principles there, where if you see a brother caught in sin, what are you supposed to do? Well, firstly, you go to that person and you tell him, hey, brother, you're on a dangerous road. You're disobeying God's command. I, I encourage you to repent, to turn away from your sin for your own sake. And if they don't listen to you, what does he tell you to do? He tells you to go take another brother or sister with you. You have some accountability. And he says, do it again. Confront them in their sin. And if they still don't listen to the two of you, what are you to do? You're supposed to bring it to the elders. And the elders are supposed to confront them and and care for them and and try to restore them. And if they don't listen to the elders, then it's supposed to be brought forward to the church. Again, we've been in church cultures our whole life where this is practiced. And it's a good thing. It's, It's called church discipline. It preserves the purity of the body, does it not? But um, but when you really look at the context here, right? we always think it's discipline, and the goal is to remove the person from the church. And we forget that the, the purpose of removing somebody from the church is so that they might be restored back into the fellowship. And it's important to remember the context of Matthew 18. Before Jesus talks about these principles of restoration, he talks about a wandering sheep that the shepherd went and found. He left the 99 to go find the one. And then after these principles of discipline, there is the story uh, or the parable about forgiveness. Forgiveness. So what's the point of church discipline? 
It's restoration. It's restoration. Yes, discipline is involved, but the main purpose is restoration. I, I think that we should change the name. I mean, I'm not saying we, sh- we really should. This isn't a elders. This isn't an official. I'm not telling you to change your doctrinal statement or your bylaws or anything. But just for the sake of our mindset, of switching our mindset, I wish we would more often call it principles of biblical restoration, not just discipline. I want to tell you a story real quick. Um, back in 2000, when I was just 13 years old, I think the problem with church discipline is when we hear church discipline, we only think of negative stories. We mostly have stories of people who were disciplined out of the church who never returned. And that's necessary, but it's, it's, it's hard. And rarely do I find a story of someone who is church disciplined and then restored back into the fellowship. But I got to tell you, when I was 13 years old, we had a, a friend of mine, uh, a friend of mine's father. He was my basketball coach. And he, this happened to him. He left his wife for another woman. And he went through the whole process. Friends came to confront him. He didn't listen. A couple friends came together to confront him. He didn't listen. It was brought before the elders. He refused to repent. He was, it was brought before the church. And he was, he was disciplined out of the body. He was no longer a member. We treated him as an unbeliever. That was the right thing to do. But as a young 13-year-old... When my pastor stood up in front of the church and told me, hey, we're supposed to go after him in love to restore him back. I took that very literally and very seriously, and I wrote him a letter. I wrote him a letter just begging with him and pleading with him. I didn't judge him. I just said, hey, I love you. I care for you. Would you please forsake your sin and come back into the church? And I didn't hear from him for years, but like five, six years later, he actually repented He came back to the church. He was reunited with his wife. And he's become a very dear friend of mine. He actually attended my church in Dover for a few weeks uh, before he moved across the state. He called me this past weekend to ask me for some advice. And we just have a good relationship. So I find that moment, that story in my personal life as just a way of remembering that the goal is restoration. It's not just to cast out the sin. Church discipline does that. It does protect the purity right, of the church. But the ultimate goal is restoration, to bring them back, to rescue them, to deliver them. Not many people have positive stories like that. That's why I wanted to share that with you. Um, But as we close, I want you to think about this. Can your friends say of you that they glorify God better because of you? Can your friends say that? And can you say of your friends your brothers and sisters here at this church, that you glorify God more because of them. Listen, this is where it's going to come real close to home for all of us, if we're honest with ourselves. It's easy to judge. It's easy to correct. It's hard to confront. It's hard to care. It's hard to restore. But I want you to think about this. If our God, if our God who is actually holy relates to us sinners by being gentle and lowly, good and kind, gracious and merciful, forgiving and loving, then surely we can relate to one another that way, can we not? I mean, he's actually holy. We're not even actually holy. All the holiness and righteousness that we have is borrowed from Christ. All of it especially after receiving that kind of love and grace and mercy from God, we should give that back to one another. Again, you can only give what you've received. 
And if you've received grace, give grace. If you've received forgiveness, grant forgiveness. So all of this to say, I want you to think about this. Maybe you're thinking of somebody in your life right now who's struggling with sin. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's someone in this room. Maybe it's a member of your church. Maybe it's somebody at work who's a believer. And, and you know that they're trapped in their sin. You know that they're caught in their sin. And you know that you're supposed to confront them. And maybe you're hesitant because it's uncomfortable. And maybe you really want to help them. But I want to encourage you with this. Before you go admonish your brother and sister in their sin, this is what I want you to do. I want you to ask yourself these questions. Have you prayed for this person? Have you looked at your own heart first? Are you careful to avoid the temptation towards pride? Do you have the relational equity with this person? Do they know you? Do they trust you? Is there somebody better who could confront them? Are you aware of their personal history and context? In other words, are you asking more questions or are you accusing? We must be careful there. Before you confront somebody, you should ask, are your emotions under control? Is your goal to build them up or to tear them down? Is your aim really restoration? And are you hoping for the best? Again, we want to be a church that has a depth of relationships and a purity of our body. John 13, 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Philippians 4, 5, let your gentleness and reasonableness be made known to all. Again, we want to have churches that have reputations of being places of care. Places of care. We believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, yes, do we not? We believe that God's Word is alone, uniquely powerful, to transform the soul. We believe that God's word alone is uniquely powerful to transform our lives after salvation. We believe that God has invested his power in his word. Amen and amen, right? But we do not believe in the sufficiency of the pulpit. We don't believe in the sufficiency of preaching. We don't believe in the sufficiency of the pastor. In other words, what I want you to see is that preaching is primary in our worship services. But God's word can also be and should also be primary in our relationships with one another. We should be caring for one another. We should be admonishing one another. We should be encouraging one another. We should be building one another up with that same word. How can you... I want you to look into your heart and think, how can you apply this to yourself this, this evening? What's your tendency? Do you have the tendency to be that overzealous confronter? Or are you more that timid confronter? Are there people in your life that need confronting? Are there people in your life that need encouragement? Again, we want to be a church that is committed to restoration, that is committed to care, that is committed to God's word, and we must do it with gentleness and humility. We must do it with love and care. We must do it for the right reason. Yes, for the purity of the body, but also for the restoration of our brothers and sisters to Christ and to the church. Again, none of us are beyond this. I've had, 
I've been one to confront others, and I've had people confront me. We need both. We need both in the church. Um, Let me pray for you, and then I will turn it back over to you, Dave. Father, we come before you, and we're just reminded of the gospel. The good news, not of what we have done, but the good news of what Christ has done for us. Lord, we confess this evening that the only thing that we contributed to our salvation was the sin from which we needed to be saved from. Everything else is all of grace. Our justification, our reconciliation, our redemption, our sanctification, ultimately our glorification are all things that you do in us, that you do for us. Father, we confess that living in this world is hard. We live in a broken world. We live in broken bodies. We face temptations from within. We face temptations from without. Lord, all of us are prone to falling away. All of us are prone to being caught in sin. May we never lose sight of that. May we be humble. And Lord, when we see others caught in sin, may we gently restore them. And when others see sin in us, may they gently restore us. And together, may we work to have a more pure body, one that is more mature, one that is more gospel-centered, one that is more glorifying to you, not just on Sunday mornings, but throughout our week and throughout our lives, no matter where we are. Lord, I pray this for this church. I pray this for my church. Lord, thank you for what you're doing in New Hampshire. We pray that you would continue to save souls. We pray that you would continue to rise up Christians. We pray that you continue to mature those Uh, who already know you. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for this church. We pray all this in your son's name and for his glory. Amen.